Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy, the podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. For today's episode, I caught up with Laura Regan, the founder of Footlight Presents, an independent live music promotion company in Ridgewood, New York, that spotlights predominantly queer, trans, and femme artists. Not only is Footlight predominantly queer woman-owned, About 90% of their staff is also queer women and gender-fluid folks. This is a company that prioritizes putting women in positions of power and authority in order to influence others to do the same, which is so needed in any music space. It was a joy to chat with Laura about how Footlight got started and her mission to spotlight as many underground artists as possible. We also discuss Footlight's packed Pride programming for this year and our shared hometown, Boston. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. All right, well, I've been doing this new thing, by the way, where I start all my conversations with an archival just point where I ask where we are, Mm -hmm. what time it is, and... The first, this should have been the first question, and what your name is. <laughs> so, so who are you, what time is it, and where are we? My name is Laura Regan. It is almost 11 a.m. What day is it? April 1st. It's April Fool's. <laughs> it is April Fool's 2023, and we are at Footlight Presents at the Windjammer in Ridgewood, Queens. Awesome. And I guess to start, do you want to give a little brief introduction about yourself and what you do? Sure. I am the owner-operator of Footlight Presents, which is a promotional company that operates the venue space in the Windjammer. I am a musician, (laughs) which a lot of people don't realize. (laughs) I... What about me? It's hard to talk about yourself. I guess um, to start, something we have in common is we're both from Boston. Oh, yeah, that's right. So what was the first introduction that music made f- into your life, like, when you were still, like, in in mass? Yeah. I started really young in musical theater. I started doing musical theater when I was probably seven or eight years old. I loved... I, I always needed a lot of attention. You can ask my brother. <laughs> I was always the one taking up all the attention in the room. And my my parents just recognized really early that I should be doing more performance stuff and getting that energy out somewhere outside of our living room. So I started doing a lot of musical theater. I also started doing a lot of singing lessons and music lessons throughout my childhood and into my teens. And then I went to Boston Arts Academy. I was actually the first graduating class of Boston Arts Academy. It, I graduated in 2001 and then went on to have a full scholarship to Berklee College of Music, which was a lot of pressure. But <laughs> yeah, and, and once I graduated, I wish I had moved to New York right away, to be honest. Like I, 
I had a band in Boston. I started Bridget in the Squares. That was my original band and played around Boston quite a bit in the Boston music scene. Learned a lot about booking and promoting and touring and recording what it takes to do all of those things and also started bartending and you know taking up getting more experience in the hospitality industry Uh, yeah and then all like in 2009 I just kind of made this big switch and moved to New York I'd been thinking about it I think subconsciously for a long time I think I was kind of stuck in this like post-college like kind of safety net I guess Boston felt safe but I needed something else I never really fully realized who I was in Boston it wasn't until I moved to New York that I started to realize what my purpose really was and and then work started working towards that goal almost immediately where was the first place in New York you lived oh man I moved to New York and I think it was like May of 2009 and I just I had been going back and forth on the Chinatown bus so many times trying to find an apartment and trying to get a job and or both and it just like wasn't happening it wasn't working out I had to just be here so I put all my stuff in my friend's van Paul Sense from the band This Car Up he had this big passenger van, like 15 passenger van that he would use for touring and he had to get it re-registered in Virginia. So we put all of my stuff in his car, in his van, and he drove me down to New York <laughs> with all of my possessions and dropped me off at a mini storage, put all my stuff in storage and moved into a temporary sublet in Crown Heights for two weeks. I had two weeks to find a place to live and find a job or like be homeless. <laughs> It was crazy. And I ended up actually finding a job and finding an apartment and then almost immediately quitting that job and then getting another job. And it just like, it was a chaotic six months of my life. And I ended up living in Clinton Hill area. Or like, really, it was Bed-Stuy. It was like the border of Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill. And they're called the Taffy Lofts. A lot of Pratt students live there. So I was like 26, living in essentially a dorm (laughs) for Pratt students and just working whatever jobs I could to just stay here. And then like about a year later, I moved into Bushwick. And I lived in Bushwick for three years. And I really started finding my people when I lived in Bushwick. And this was in 2010, 2011. And then I moved to Ridgewood in 2013. And that's when I really felt home home you know Bushwick was fun and I I, you know I loved my time there but it never felt like home it still felt really transient to me and I lived with a ton of roommates when I moved to Ridgewood I moved into this little railroad and I lived across the street from a park and there was lots of trees (laughs) and it was just it actually reminded me a lot of Boston Ridgewood reminds me a lot of like Jamaica Plain or like Rosendale in in Boston. And so, yeah, I just, I felt at home there. And, you know, now I've been in that apartment for 10 years. So, you know, and then I started my business here. And what were sort of the first steps after like you settled in Ridgewood and started the business? Well, the first steps, it's really hard to say because, you know, I've always 
had this goal to open a venue since I was like 14 years old. I always wanted to like open an art space that, and when I was young, it was like, I want to open an all ages art space because there wasn't a lot of access to all ages venues at the time. And I actually did get to achieve that when we had the old footlight at 465 Seneca. I did a lot more all ages stuff. It was just easier to do because there was more of a separation between the rooms. The room was bigger. You know, now that we're at the Windjammer, we're a little more limited. But it's something I'm will- I'm trying to bring back. I do love giving access to emerging artists. That's like my main mission is to provide a platform for emerging artists. And that's always been something that I wanted to do. So even when I was a musician and I was playing around, you know, I've, and, you know, bartending and like working in different bars and restaurants, all of that was just information. I was just constantly absorbing information about what I would do and what I wouldn't do and how to execute this and how, to, you know, what permits do I need to do this? And like, you know, and so I was basically just like for the, my, up until I was 30, I was just a sponge. I was just absorbing all the information possible. And that's when I started applying the knowledge that I had acquired. And I started, you know, looking at all the city websites and, you know, making checklists of all the things I needed to do and what order I needed to do them in. And then just started doing it. And, you know, and when it came to the money aspect of it, you know, I, a, a good friend of mine once told me, you know, if you wait until you have all the money to do it, you're never going to do it. That's just not how business works. The, the best, the big, biggest thing about business, the biggest lesson that you can learn is that you really shouldn't spend your own money. You should have a strong enough concept and an idea that inspires people to, you know, want to work with you towards a similar goal. And that's what a good business plan is. And, you know, and I felt like we had a pretty solid idea of what we wanted to do. Unfortunately, we were very limited by our original space and a lot of the issues that came up with that space. So, you know, that's why moving into the Windjammer post-pandemic and, you know, starting up this collaboration with them has been amazing because we're finally able to really realize a lot of the artistic and creative goals that we had. I'm just, it's a lot more flexible for me. My overhead is, is less than it was at the original space. And even though we're smaller, I feel like it's actually better for our emerging arts mission to be a small stage. So that's kind of how it, so it was basically just absorb, absorb, absorb until I felt confident enough to execute. And it was a long process for me. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with imposter syndrome. I don't know. You know, like you never think you're ready. You know, you never think you're ready to do these things. But like, that's that's the trick. You're not going to be ready. You just have to do it and learn as you go. That's like the biggest lesson you can learn as an adult is that nobody knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all just winging it. <laughs> exactly. And in addition to the focus on emerging artists, what I really like that you're doing with Footlight is focusing on spotlighting emerging femme and trans and queer artists. Would you like to speak a little more about that mission? Yeah, I mean, I think it was very organic for me to end up with this focus. You know, I think when I first started Footlight, I was in 2016, you know, I had a lot of input. I had a lot of other partners. I had a lot of other people that were involved. And I immediately got like extremely overwhelmed with running everything and also placating what everybody wanted and needed. And 
you know, the vision for the space was very confusing to me, which is not good. You know, so when we got to start over and move into the Windjammer, I wanted that to be the main focus. I wanted to put women on stage behind the soundboard at the door, you know, put women in positions of authority and power and where they traditionally aren't seen so that that inspires others to do the same. You know, like you have to see it to, you know, to believe it. You have to see people in these positions and, and, and doing these jobs in order to believe that you can also do that job, that you can play bass in a band, you can play drums in a band, you can be a sound engineer, you can open a venue and run a venue. You know, it's like, if you don't see people doing it, it's hard to imagine doing it. And so that was what I wanted to do when we moved into this space, was kind of reimagine how I want the space to run and look and be more and actively operated like that. So, mm -hmm. and it was fine. And I finally felt like I had the control and the wherewithal to just execute that plan. And so it's been really satisfying. It's been really satisfying to run a venue that way. And, you know, to have that conversation with artists, like, you know, I want to see representative and diverse bills on my stage every night. You know, and every artist that sends me an email gets the same email back saying, this is how we run the space. These are my expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to see an entire stage of cis white men. You know, no offense to cis white men, but also, sorry, not They sorry. get all the opportunities they all, have. every time. They yeah. have them everywhere else. Like, yeah. why would they? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's just like, like they, we yeah. need to change the norm. The norm should not be that. The norm, like, I there's this, there's this Instagram about like like 90s nostalgia or rock like like alternative 90s nostalgia and i was looking through it one day and it's just like white dude white dude white dude white dude is it white dude i i i can think of a few of those i think grunge bible is the really big one oh that yeah I can yeah, think yeah. Of. yeah but that, if you look at their reels I, yeah it's just like oh my god white dude white dude white dude and that was like the 90s yeah. was just like a bunch of white dudes on stage, mm -hmm. you know, with this with like a handful. You could probably count on one hand, like, you know, how many very popular, you know, yeah. on, like on and not just on the radio, but like, you know, like front facing, like people promoting yeah. these people. And it's like, you know, and it wasn't people of color and it wasn't women. There was like very few that were getting any sort of airtime especially on like MTV and you know so it's like we need to change that norm and the only mm -hmm. way we do that is by putting other people in those on stage and yeah. in those positions so you know and when it came to queer programming that was something you know Windjammer's an old man dive bar and I think that a lot of folks who are queer you know, might come into a space like that and not feel immediately comfortable and feel possibly threatened by some of the like old towny like dudes like hanging out at the bar watching sports. Hmm. But like my interpretation of that is that, you know, we only cre have queer spaces by putting queer people in them and, and by, you know, making our presence known and acceptable you know, by accepting it ourselves. So like for me, making the back room of Windjammer <laughs> a queer venue, 
was something that I felt was necessary for, you know, adding another safe space for queer musicians and artists, adding, you know, for my queer staff. I have predominantly femme and queer staff. Mm. And so every time you come to the back room, you know, you're going to see pride flags. You're going to see trans flags. You're going to see, you know, trans people working for me. You're going to see women working for me, you know, and like that's how we claim this space and that's how we claim any space Mm -hmm. you know you have to it's scary it's definitely scary it's scary to walk into a place and not know if you're going to be safe but that's why we try we try to you know have signifiers we try to put pride flags Mm -hmm. inside of windjammer which and jesse sullivan the owner of windjammer is such a sweet and loving caring person and like he is so tolerant and so of like, all of our cuckoo banana pants stuff he's abundantly tolerant and accepting of it and you know this is a safe space and, ju- and appearances can be deceiving and some of those old dudes sitting at the bar are actually some of the most tolerant people and some of them are queer too mm-hmm. you know you really can't judge a book by its cover but like i am super proud of what we've been able to do with the windjammer space and how we've been able to you know marry the old and and the new ideas that we have put into the space and they just work so well you know and it is a safe space and i'm really proud of that yeah i love that and a big thing that another cool thing that you do is a drag bingo as well sometimes we don't do drag bingo right now we were we were doing drag bingo and mm-hmm. i love drag bingo but unfortunately those the drag queens that we were working with vixen and zalika parsons got this like really amazing gig and they were doing an amazing drag brunch at a place in the Lower East Side for the last couple, for the last like year or so. And actually they just got, they just lost that gig. And I don't know if you heard about it. I was going to bring that up because I saw Vixen's post and I was like, I don't think this is a coincidence with all of the moral panic that's happening around this I really, really vague legislation antagonizing queer people. I know. I really, yeah. I don't know. I can't speak for the Cell Rose management, but it can't, like, it, I don't feel like it's a coincidence either. If anything, it's terrible optics to choose to cancel a very successful drag brunch right now because because of budget cuts or whatever is like the worst optics for business possible and like and even if it is just for like monetary reasons it's just like now is not the time that is so rude and and the fact that they gave them literally no notice at all it's absolutely it's unprofessional it's you know it's really upsetting i would i mean i wish that we had the resources to do drag mango and pay them like as much money as they were gonna make doing uh the drag brunch but unfortunately we just don't have the resources to to do that and on it and drag queens are they earn money they should make all the money they put so much work into what they do and they execute it so flawlessly and you know i think it, it really upsets me and sickens me what's happening to the queer community and the media, the way, you know, I, I just, I wish that they would just freaking drop it. You know, yeah. it's like, I feel like the media makes it worse, even if they're in favor of, you know, queer, leg- like, like trying to prevent this queer legislation, yeah. like making it the talking piece of, you know, of, in this negative, horrible, disgusting way. It's, yeah. it's just like, 
fueling the fire and it's completely preposterous. Even with like queer run like publications in the media too, like the every time I see a post on the Gay Times Instagram, it's always some headline about like Joe Biden says this or this senator says this horrible inflammatory thing, derogatory thing or look what this ally did. Aren't they so, such an ally? And I'm just like, I know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, it's, you're, you're a queer-run publication, and and even you are falling victim to this, like, optics of, like, oh, we need clicks. We need a good click rate. So l- let's put, like, look at this ally. Like, like I, I think, like, even outrage is something that's going to help them, like, because you're giving them attention. Yep, and, exactly. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. it. And I also like queer people are already so overwhelmed and, you know, we're like we're, you know, disproportionately affected by mental illness and suicide and depression. And it's just not healthy to have this be the constant like deluge of you know, information that we're getting from Instagram, from the news, from, you know, it's just, we don't need it. We don't yeah. need it. It's already so challenging, you know, to operate in this, in this country, especially right now as a, you know, as a queer person, it's just like, it's just so overwhelmingly negative and we don't need it. We don't need any more yeah. negative information just like, barraging us every day and then on top of all of that there are going to be like people who are so like just bothered by queer people simply existing yeah that they'll be like posting memes that like i literally literally saw someone like this morning that was just like oh look at this lgbt propaganda like suffocating me aren't i so oppressed and it's just like (laughs) oh dude that must be so hard for you i am so sorry (laughs) it's really upsetting i honestly like i try not to participate too much in it i try i try not to absorb it i don't like it's already traumatic enough knowing that i have friends that like actively live in danger every day because they you know because i'm i'm like you know i'm hetero passing you know i'm in it i'm in a relationship with a man you know but i am bisexual and you know and i did grew up in the 90s and it was hard to identify as queer then and you know I are I, like I was there when they legalized gay marriage in Massachusetts I was outside the state house and I stood across the street from a you know hundreds of people holding signs saying Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve you know and like screaming horrible things at us and you know and I was like 21 or 22 or something and it like I already like lived through that and to have it be 20 years later and we're not any better i feel like it's i really i know that we have gay marriage but like who cares gay people are still being killed for being gay trans women are being killed for being trans you know disproportionately than everyone else it's just like it's so sad yeah you know it's just so sad that like yes things are better in the terms that like there's more community now there's more acceptance there's more language you know there wasn't even language that the languages that we have now for 
queer people to identify themselves. It was completely themselves. different, not even seven or ten years ago. No. Yeah. Honestly, like, when I was, when I was coming out as queer, I didn't even feel like I was queer enough because I was bisexual. Because mm-hmm. that was also, like, a really common thing in the queer community, you know, that, like, if you're bi or, or straight passing, yeah. that you're not queer enough to participate. And people, and people will look at you like, oh, you're here. Well, I guess we're contractually obligated to let you in. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. It sucks. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, like, that was a really, it, honestly, it wasn't until, you know, the last, like, five or six years, you know, and I've been in a relationship, I've been with my husband for 11, 12 years almost, and, you know, there there was a point where I didn't even feel comfortable claiming my space as a queer-run space because I was bisexual and I was in a in a hetero relationship, you know, and like I, it what you know I I felt like I had to claim the space as queer for the queer community, and you know, and in doing that, I felt so much more empowered to identify as queer and to you know be more open about it you know and that you know it's like I'm 40 and I've only been able to like really like be public and and identify as queer in the last like six years you know and I've been queer my whole life let's 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 be I didn't really and I went to Catholic school so like I didn't even really it, I look back on things now, like through therapy and whatever. Like I look back on on interactions I had and relationships I had with women or girls, you know, when I was in like middle school and high school. Then I'm like, oh yeah, I had a crush on them. <laughs> that's that's why, you know. And it's like I didn't even realize because I there was no language, there was no community, there was like even though I went to an arts high school, you know, like there just it just wasn't there. You know, so like in in the ter- in those terms, I feel like, you know, there is so much empowerment to mm-hmm. the queer community, and I love that, and I'm so happy for that. But to have that exist, but then also have this like insane backlash against the queer community just because we're more comfortable. It's like we got more comfortable, and we started exerting our rights, and then we're being punished for it like mm-hmm. tenfold. And it's scary. It's really scary. And, you know, and I'm I'm just going to keep running my little art space <laughs> and, like, having queer shows yeah. and, like, you know, doing what I can for the queer community. You know, we do fundraisers as often as possible when we can. I mean, we don't have resources, which is, you know, unfortunate. Like, we really don't. We're an emerging art space. We do not make a lot of money. You know, we barely break even. Sometimes we don't break even, you know. And, like, I have to stretch a dollar for weeks at a time, you know, sometimes just to make ends meet. And, you know, but I still will take every opportunity to raise money for Glitz or to raise money for Trevor Project or like, you know, whatever I can to, you know, give back to my community. And sometimes it is just donating space, which I'm more than happy to do, you know, on any occasion, you know, but it's just, you know, it's that's what I can do. And so that's what I do do. But yeah, I can't I like it's so hard to follow the news these days Mm -hmm. and just like not feel so depressed. Yeah. (laughs) On a lighter note, like (laughs) let's name some super talented queer people. Queer musicians that I love. Honestly, one of my favorite bands right now is Crush Fund. You know Crush Fund? 
My good friend went to an amazing show that they played. I think it was at Purgatory. Yeah. And it was like incredibly hot. And so like the lead singer and the drummer like were just like, fuck it. Like, like <laughs> tanks off, shirts off. And <laughs> and I get and my friend who's a trans woman, an openly trans woman who I went to a show with last night. She was just telling me last night that the person who was emceeing the night, the drag queen was like, if all the consenting femmes also get their tits out, then we can extend one more song for the set. Oh my God. And my friend told me that that was the most liberating night of their life. I like am just so jealous. Looking at all the trans women with their tits out. Oh just, my God. Just like having a ball for this encore that was going over time. And I'm sure that they were pissing off the purgatory management. Probably but, not. No, purgatory is yeah. pretty chill. I like that's just that I love Purgatory. That is such a cool venue. There, it's just so unique the way they have it set up. I'm in awe. It's it's so cool. I love that space and I love the programming that they're doing. I'm, I really I've seen a couple really awesome shows there. But yeah, Crush Fund. I saw Crush Fund at this church that's doing like performances occasionally in Ridgewood. It's on. I want to say it's on. It's not on Catalpa, but it's like one over or something. It's on like 60th or 70th or something. But uh, it, it was this, like, they're very, like, mathy and, like, intense, but, like, so fun. It's, like, intense fun. It's amazing. And Nora Knox is their drummer. And I actually hired Nora recently. Nora is going to start doing, she's doing, we have a queer jam night once a month. It's every second Wednesday. And, you know, we basically just invite musicians to come. It's queer curated, but like open for all emerging artists and allies. My friend Sam Graham hosts and Nora does the sound and also will hop behind the drums or whatever instrument is necessary. Also super multi-talented musician. And Nora also is doing our karaoke night now, which is the last Wednesday of every month or the fourth Wednesday of every month. Sometimes there's an extra Wednesday. But yeah, Nora is amazing. I've seen her play drums I've seen her play guitar she sings and you know and that and Crush Fund killed it at that show I saw and I've seen them I think one or two times since then and I think they're playing here soon too but yeah I love them they're great <laughs> very fun yeah I'm sure I almost went to see them at Heaven Can Wait and so now I have to catch them yeah because it sounds like an event for yeah, sure it's so fun they are so fun to watch I love that band and also what are some of the most fun shows that you've booked here recently that you have been really stoked about you can just talk about like this month to, to so you can like narrow it down because I'm yeah. sure there's so many. There is a lot. There's there's a lot. We did have one of my favorite shows we ever had here was really early on actually. It was in like I want to say it was like January of like 2022 or something. But we had this band, the local local Weathermen, and they just brought this incredible energy, this like raw energy, and they they play very like. Kind of, it reminds me a lot of like, you know, 90s alternative, like grungy stuff. And I don't know, their friends were all here. It was a packed room. And at one point, the guitar player crowd surfed while also still singing. And it was the coolest thing I've ever seen in a teeny tiny space like this. And it was awesome. And I, I love 
that. I love that like raw energy that like young musicians bring to the stage. That's why I love doing emerging arts because these people are hungry and ready and like want to be on stage so badly and they bring it, you know, and I, I love that energy and I, that's what I love doing. That's why I love doing this. But like what's coming up? There's a really good show tonight, but I know this isn't going to this is going to air after this. But April 1st, we have like the Wanderers. Ooh. Yeah, they're really great. And one of the lead singer actually is a bartender here at Windjammer. Courtney and they're pretty incredible. What's coming up? Oh my god, I have to think. To think, I have. You'd think I would have my entire calendar in my head at all times, but I am old and I forget everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's like one joke that I people. I I I meet a lot of people and I feel terrible about it, but like I really don't remember probably like 90% of the people <laughs> that I meet because it's just too much for one brain. Well, we already talked about the queer jam, which I'm, ex- which I, I'm excited about. Um, let me see. On April 7th, we have Sky Creature, Devin Church is doing an album release, mm-hmm. and, Church, and Church Crush, which I've wanted to get Church Crush in here for a while. That's going to be a really good show. As far as like music shows go, that's and then there's another one on the 21st, horror movie marathon Ooh. always does really well. And Dire Phaser, which is actually a band from Boston, I've known Amelia from Dire Phaser for probably like 15 years, and that project is so cool and it's really neat. And that's gonna co- that's gonna be on the 21st. And Big Spirit is on that. I've wanted them on on the stage for a while too, so that'll be a really good show. But yeah, there's a lot. There's just a lot of like rad, like indie rock stuff going on right now and coming up. I would love to do more like hip hop stuff, like alternative underground hip hop stuff. That's something Definitely. I'm always looking for. You know, the the tough part with that is that there are so many promoters and there's not a lot of femme forward female promoters. I'm trying. I'm always trying to work with more like femme promoters when it comes to hip hop stuff because I want to see women on the stage, especially with hip hop. Mm. And so, you know, but that's, I'm always looking for new stuff, but that's, that's one thing on my list right now of things that I want to get worked into our programming. Cause I feel like we're a little too alt rock heavy right now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's hard to diversify all the time. The genres you know, because I do, it, I am actively booking like two to three months in advance at all times. So like I have like at least like 60 shows like in my head, you know, be promoting for the next like two to three months. And so, you know, I do. And I like I like to work with the bands as a collaboration. So like I prefer to do booking where the bands bring me the bill. I can round it out. Like I, I'll like off like it's like, oh, well, like instead of this band, how about you do this band? Or like, if you, if you need like an opener, you should b- book this person. You know, I try to do that. And that's wh- how I kind of like tweak the bill. So I make sure that they are diverse and representative. Um, like I like, but I always feel that if the band books the bill, they're going to promote it harder. Cause it's like their bill. Like they put it together. It's their show and there's ownership there. When you just book slots, like, I, there's there it doesn't build the camaraderie oh, yeah. 
it doesn't it doesn't build the community like i feel like you know booking a, a show with two other bands you know like you're gonna work together to promote that show and make sure that show is a success if you're just booking a slot and like i introduce you to another like oh you're gonna do at nine you're gonna do at eight mm. it's just like not it just it's so disjointed yeah you know and we're and we're very much a community space and i want the musicians to build a community together and like work together to you know promote music that right i feel like that always is more successful and if you're also just booking slots which i noticed when i interned for like a bit for like a medium-sized venue that the type of haranguing that you have to do and just to get the talent to promote the show yeah it's like pulling teeth yep it's i mean it already is yeah (laughs) it is it is all that is one thing that will never not be frustrating about booking and promoting music is that artists don't like to promote themselves (laughs) some of them do but like for the most part you know i approach promotion from like a sort of like a teaching perspective so like you know every show that we book we'll also get a follow-up email of promotional tips that you know have worked for us in the past and you know tend to work towards successful shows so like they'll get an email that's like these are the places you can list your show these are the you know the music writers you can reach out to which you have done before you know you did that amazing article about huh that was, such, that was a good, such a good show. It was such a good show, but like that write-up like brought tears to all of our eyes. You did oh. such an amazing job. <laughs> <I> <laughs> but appreciate. like, you know, that's but like I give the artist those opportunities. I'm like, you have the op- these are, are all of the things that you can do. If you do all of these things, you will probably have a very successful show. If you do three of these things, you might have an okay show. If you do none of them, you're gonna have a terrible show. Like you have to promote your music. You have to promote the show. And the only way this, and we split everything 65% to the artist, 35% to the venue. And if the artists aren't bringing people, you know, we're not, we're not breaking even by, a, by at all. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we absorb all the risk here. You know, the artists will make what they make, you know, and of course, artists also have expenses. I mean, they have to get here. They have to, you know, maintain their equipment. They all probably have practice spaces. You know, but we have a lot of overhead. This is actually, this is not a DIY space. You know, we are a licensed business. You know, I have to pay sales tax. I have to pay general liability insurance. I have to pay workers' comp and disability. All my staff is on payroll. You know, like, I, this is a business. And, you know, and unfortunately, those costs are expensive, you know, but it is worth it for me to, you know, again, stretch a dollar sometimes for a couple of weeks, you know, just to make this stuff work because the mission is what matters you know as buffy says Mm -hmm. um you know the mission is what matters and you know the money is what the money is you know and i i know that like you know sometimes it's going to be tough but then other times it's not other times you know bands do the work and it is very successful you know so it really just you know we provide as much support as we possibly can and i feel like that is the best way you know, to make sure that the artists are supported, not just like, you're not just like hammering them to do their promotional work. You know, it's like, no, I want to support you to do this work so that everyone is successful. Mm -hmm. And 
Oh, would you like to tell me about that massive reunion show that you did with Bridget in the Squares recently? <laughs> oh, God. It was uh, honestly like, it was fun. It was really fun. I, you know, I started that band in like 2007, 2008. And then when I moved to New York, it was like a completely different project. I started playing with Kyle Thompson, who is this amazing drummer and musician. He's a very musical drummer. He's a songwriter as well. He plays guitar, you know, and we, played together pretty consistently till like 2013 and then both went we went on hiatus because I was going to open Footlight and you know and he started another band incredibly elderly I had another band called Hot Mess that was you know just like my friends and we would play like stupid songs it was like a riot girl kind of like punk band it was so fun but the only reason we broke up that band was because my drummer moved to Berlin Drummers. Berlin. <laughs> I know. Yeah, she really left. She like moved out of the country. So did Kyle. Like in the last couple of years, Kyle has moved to Canada. So, you know, it's been hard to do any kind of music. You know, running an event, this space is, you know, it's very all encompassing. And, you know, and in addition to that, I also have started doing more nonprofit stuff. So, like, I started a nonprofit. We operate an advocacy program called the Neighborhood Venue Alliance. And the Neighborhood Venue Alliance is, you know, we basically, you know, set, we're, we're getting to the point where we're going to be setting up panel discussions. You know, I want to do like entrepreneurship panels for like women and people of color to be able to come and like ask questions about opening venue spaces. You know, I want to do, you know, panels about like nightlife safety and, you know, Narcam training and, you know, all the different, you know, things that nightlife needs, you know, to build community and Mm -hmm. work together and sustain. I mean, honestly, we need more support to sustain this industry in a, in a healthy, safe and progressive way. So like those, I've been working on those goals. I also work with Naiva a little bit, which is the New York Independent Venues Association. I kind of am getting more involved with them, which is exciting, but also all of these things are very time consuming. I really don't get to play much music anymore. So it was really fun to play together again, but like I get so freaking nervous now because like I, I don't have the time to really dedicate to practicing to the level that I would like to. And so when I get up on stage, I'm just like, oh God, like, can I even play these songs anymore? I don't know. And I get really freaked out, but it was, it was fun. I'm glad I did it, but I'm probably not going to do it again for a long time. So it was a special occasion, pretty much. It was. I mean, my friends from Slow Dim wanted to do like a little reunion show. And, you know, they hadn't played in New York a really long time. And so it was really for them. And Izzy Oren Brown opened and she's phenomenal. She's so talented. Her music is beautiful. So it was just, it was really just a fun, you know, opportunity to get a bunch of friends together. A bunch of my friends who also live in New York, but we all like never see each other because we're all so busy. We all got together and like, Got, it was fun. It was really fun. But I'm glad I'm. it's, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I also, you know what I, this might be an unpopular opinion, but here's my public service announcement for the day, <laughs> especially in music circles. I think bass player slander really needs to stop. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a totally random moment, but... 
Uh, I can play bass. I think they get. I think they get a bad rap. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, I agree with that. I was listening to. Do you know the? You know the the Ringer podcast series, like sixty songs that explain the nineties. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. There was one episode where the host talked about how like Green Day and Third Eye Blind's like bass players got into like a row or something, and he was like. <laughs> Who let the bass player out of the dog crate? Who is so irresponsible? And I was just like, okay, I get it. Like, it's it's a ha-ha funny joke. But also, like, there's so much bass player slander in the music community. There is. That and drummers. Yeah. The shit under the stick. And let's be, let's be, they're holding it down. Yeah. The drummers and the bass players are holding it down for the rest of us. You have no idea, like, how many times the rhythm section is saving the rest of the band's ass. All the time. All the time. All the time. Or what about when the drummer is too egotistical to use a click track? (laughs) Who's saving them? The bass player. Yes. Yes. No. I wholeheartedly agree. (laughs) That is is some bullshit. There should not be any slander against the bass players of the world. They're absolutely crushing it. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of the most, like, talented musicians I've run into, bass players and drummers. Yeah. And also, like... Um, I wanted to mention as well, I wanted to ask, like, how do you currently feel about, because you mentioned, like, how nightlife, in order to sustain itself, like, needs more support. How do you feel about the state of live music now in this really weird, like, post-2020 world where going out feels like more of a privilege than anything to a lot of people? I honestly, it has been really tough. It's... So, you know, we've come out of the, you know, the deep pandemic, you know, isolation period and people are starting to come back out. But the reality is, is that people are still getting sick, you know, and now, you know, colds and flus are way more serious than they were in previous years because all of our immune systems are all screwed up because we've, you know, been, we were isolated for a year, you know, or more. And, you know, it's definitely still affecting the industry significantly but you know you know congress and you know our state legislatures have just you know moved on they're like they don't really consider our yeah, industries the pandemic anymore. is over didn't you hear joe biden says oh yeah the <laughs> pandemic is not over i i've had i had three covid cancellations this month yeah i had three bands have to cancel on separate dates because a member got covid you know yeah. and we also we still ask them to test before they play, which is honestly good thing because otherwise those people probably would have showed up and played and then got everyone sick, you know. Yeah. And it's not and it's not just COVID. It is colds. It is flus. There's still there's still a lot of risk, you know. And people have gotten to the point where they're just willing to absorb that risk because they'd rather, you know, live with a little risk than you know not enjoy their lives, <laughs> you know. But then there are people that don't have that option you know there are people who are immunocompromised that do not have that option and you know and that is very it's sad and you know and i but it is it's hard to really have a firm opinion on this because like while i am totally empathetic for people who are immunocompromised i also have to run this business and the way society has chosen to move on and 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 deal with this pandemic is just by living with the risk you know and so we can't really we have no authority 
to enforce anything. You know, we were probably one of the last holdouts of people requiring vaccination cards to enter shows. But now we don't even do that because a lot of people aren't even boosted. Mm -hmm. And that means they're not fucking vaccinated. That's what that means. If you are not boost, if you're not getting a booster shot, you are not vaccinated against COVID-19. And at this point, if you're not getting a flu shot, you're not protecting yourself at all from diseases that are getting increasingly worse as you know and and there's the larger issue of like climate change is also fueling a lot of this and we're not really thinking about that but like this is our our reality forever like it's going to continue to get worse we're going to keep having diseases that mutate and that can't be controlled by you know but it's just it's scary it's scary this is our current reality but like it Again, it's like, you know, I run a freaking event space. So it's yeah. like, I can't, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what to tell people, you know, because like for me, like, you know, I have asthma and, you know, and I've had COVID three times because I am a front facing employee and, you know, and I've had to be out and about through most of COVID. Even during the pandemic, I worked for a, like food distribution and I, you know, was out in it, you know, but I, and I just absorbed the risk, you know, but that's my choice, you know, and everybody does have a choice, you know, to a certain extent. It's just, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to really, you know, from an industry standpoint, you know, yeah, we are all still living in this kind of limbo. And a lot of us did not get all the resources we needed to cover you know, some of the losses and the anticipated losses, you know, we shut down for a month still in over Christmas, you know, we'll shut down from December 15th to January 15th every year. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly, after Halloween, people start dropping like flies with COVID, flu, cold, you know, RSV. (laughs) Yeah. RSV was the big one this year. So like, you know, it's just not worth it for me. And like, and, and that's how I protect the community, you know, I do tell musicians to test before they come. I, you know, encourage people to wear masks if they can't social distance, you know, but they, people are going to do what they're going to do. I can't, I have no authority to tell people what to do anymore. And that is scary, but it's also like, I've just gotten used to it. I've gotten used to the fact that people are going to do what they're going to do. And I just don't have any control over it. Yeah. And that. Yeah, it's, whew. Yeah. People would rather (laughs) just dissociate and then like, but then like, and then they wonder why they feel like shit for 11 days because they just got RSV because they weren't being cautious enough in in public. And it's just like, well, that's what, why do you think like you're in this situation? I mean, and then there's also, there's the long COVID stuff too. That is, you know, some people get long COVID. You know, one of my staffers is dealing with that right now. And she's, you know, going through a lot of, you know, she's, she has to figure out how to live her life in her body as it is now. And that's terrible. And it's, you know, I feel terrible that, you know, maybe she, we don't know where, where she got COVID all the time that she got COVID, but like, you know, she could have got it from work, you know, she could have all her, but also her partner works in a kitchen, you know, so he probably got it from work and brought it, you know, it's, there's no contact tracing. There's no, you know, understanding like how you get sick anymore. It just seems like total crapshoot, like, you know, live your life or, 
like hide in your apartment and or like wear like five masks all the time and like yeah, yeah it's like you really it's just so hard because there's there's no easy answer like you because some of the people I know that do wear masks everywhere and you know and protect themselves and and get boosted and all this stuff they some there some of them are getting sick more often than anyone else yeah you know and it's there just doesn't seem to be any clear direction I can give anyone because everyone's body is different and everyone is going to deal with you know COVID differently like like I said I've had COVID three times I didn't get long COVID you know but I think a lot of that also has to do with allowing yourself to be sick and like just getting better because so so many people try to work through COVID, COVID, cold, flu, all this stuff, you know, they try to work through it and that's what makes the symptoms last longer. Yeah. So I, I, if I could, if we can take anything away from the pandemic, I do feel like there is a, a more significant culture now where if you're sick, you're sick and you go home and you stay home, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, if we can take anything away from the pandemic, then I hope that that's it. Because I can tell you right now, like I've worked in hospitality for most of my life. You know, and I would go to work sick all the time because you can't afford not to, you know, and that's it shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't have to make the decision between our livelihood yeah. and our health. And I'm hoping that there's more there are I, I know there are more protections now for that, at least, you know, we can take that away from the pandemic. But like, yeah, it's, you know, the culture has changed, you know, when it comes to your health. And I think that's one good thing that we can take away from it. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like people don't take it for granted anymore, especially spaces like these. Yes, I do. I do feel like, you know, there is there, you know, you can, the energy is back. You Mm -hmm. know, people are happy to be in these spaces. They get a lot of joy out of coming to a show again. It's less, there's less fear than there was even a year ago. And that's great. And I'm really happy for that. You know, financially, it's still pretty difficult, you know, to operate these spaces and, you know, to have to deal with cancellations, you know, when people have COVID or, you know, having a show go from three bands to two bands to one band and then just having to cancel like that Mm -hmm. happened last week. You know, it, it just it does it gets really tough, you know, but that's also why, you know, we do have like sustaining membership program. We have a sustaining membership program through With Friends, which is how we do our ticketing. You can either donate one time when you buy a ticket or you can become a member for as little as $5 a month. And that's really helpful. And then you also get discounts on tickets too. We have a Patreon as well. And I have a local business Patreon tier that I'm trying to encourage local business people to take advantage of because we have a zine that we put out every month. And so I'm hoping to kind of curate like a little advertising page of all the local businesses that we support and that support us so that's like a, that's 15 dollars a month and you'd get like permanent placement in our zine that gets distributed throughout the neighborhood and bushwick so you know we have like little ideas on like how you know and we're also this year is the first year that we're fiscally sponsored through fractured atlas so i've been applying to more grants to try to cover some of our overhead which would be amazing so i'm hoping that by the end of the year you know, we've worked that into our business model and then, you know, we'll have a little more sustainability. But, you know, yeah, it's tough. It's tough operating on these really razor thin margins that we operate on. But like, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'm really happy with what we do. And I think it's important. 
Absolutely. Ditto. It's very (laughs) important. And what else would you like to plug before we wrap up? Like where can people find you online? What do you have coming up in the coming months that you are really stoked about? Leaving room for you to plug whatever you would like. Well, you can follow us on Instagram, Footlight Presents. We're The Footlight on Twitter. And we do have a Facebook, but I don't check Facebook anymore. <laughs> I think that's the Who general, does? The yeah. general <laughs> consensus is that Facebook is dead. We do listings on Bandnada. I would say every musician should be on Bandnada. I'm we're we're gonna be doing a Pride showcase collab with Bandnada, which I'm really excited about. I'm really excited. We have so many Pride events this year. I'm so excited about Pride. I'm our. It's I know it's like two months away, but I'm like already really thrilled with some of the programming that we have coming up. So you have to follow us on Instagram, and you know check out our with friends page that has all of our upcoming events listed as we confirm them and. I don't know. Like, I I really want people to start coming to Jam because it's such a cool event and it's a really good idea. Because, you know, Jam sessions have historically been male-dominated. You know, they've been jazz-centric. You know, we're we're trying to bring back, like, this regular old Jam night where you show up with your instrument, you just play with some folks and, like, meet your next bandmates, you know, or meet more people in your music community and you know and it's in a safe space for queer folks it's curated by queer people so like you know i really want that to become like a a hang like a monthly hang i'm really happy that we started doing this with sam and you know we talked we've been trying to get it going consistently since like last year at pride and now like this like every couple months it's like it's every month and every month it grows a little bit so like we really want that to be the place where musicians come to like you know, hang out, meet each other, talk about music and, you know, play some tunes and like, it's every month you said it's every second Wednesday, every second Wednesday starts around nine 30 and goes to like 1130 or 12. You know, fun. I will definitely have to show up. Yeah. It's a really fun night. And Nora does the sound and also plays the drum sometimes. And Sam plays the piano and also other instruments sometimes. So it's, you know, and then whoever shows up just gets to play when they want to play. So that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for shooting the shit and yeah. allowing me into the space. And yeah, I had a blast chatting. So me too. Thank you. This was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy. And thank you to Laura Regan for joining me for this episode. If you are based in New York, I strongly urge you to scope out some of the killer pride events that Footlight has in the works this year. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy.